Welcome to audio highlights of the 49th Annual American Society of Hematology meeting held in December 2007 in Atlanta. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Stephanie Gregory for her take on presentations and posters on lymphoma at the ASH meeting. And to begin, she discusses studies evaluating a variety of interventions in mantle cell lymphoma, including the use of bortezomib, a proteasome inhibitor, bendamustine, an alkylating agent with purine analog features, an intensive immunochemotherapy strategy followed by an aggressive transplant regimen, an interesting report in which fairly conservative therapy was used for mantle cell, and finally a multi-institutional study of the so-called R-hypersivad regimen. Dr. Gregory, who chairs a superb annual ASH review course, reviewed these papers and their clinical implications. Abstract 125 was an oral presentation, and it was actually a long-term follow-up of a study called the Pinnacle Study, and it was presented by Andre Gua. And this was a study in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. As you know, mantle cell lymphoma is really a very aggressive lymphoma. Most patients die within two to four years. And the problem is that it's not curable. And instead of like indolent lymphomas where patients may live for eight to 10 years, patients die within two to three years. So there's no curable therapy. But this was looking at bortezomib, a proteasome inhibitor, in relapsed mantle cell. And what's interesting about bortezomib, it's already been approved for relapsed myeloma, multiple myeloma, very effective drug. And in this study, all patients were treated similarly to the way they're treated with multiple myeloma. The bortezomib was given intravenously, 1.3 milligram per meter squared, days 1, 4, 8, and 11. They actually had 141 patients that were valuable. And it was a median follow-up of about 26 months now. And 93 patients on the whole study have died. Overall response of 69%, with 91% of the patients still responding. What's interesting, in patients who were actually refractory to their last treatment for mantle cell lymphoma, they're having a median survival of about 17.3 months. Anything new in the mechanism of action of bortezomib? Well, we're not really sure. The proteasome is like a big garbage pail, and it's important in the degradation of proteins. And we think that by inhibiting the proteasome, we can help the cells die faster if we inhibit it. In general, how would you say these results in the relapse mantle cell setting compared to other agents and regimens have been looked at? I think that they are very promising, and I think what we're going to find is that now we're not only going to look at bortezomib alone in the relapse setting, but we're going to look at it in combinations. What kind of combinations, any in particular? Well, that would lead us to another abstract. Maybe you're talking about 2578? That's correct. Yeah, that's the BORID study. Can you talk about that? Well, the BORID study was, first of all, the reason for combining Drugs is obviously, if there's synergism between drugs, we can have a more effective response in patients. So this was looking at bortezomib, rituximab, and dexamethasone in patients with relapsed mantle cell. It was a small study. There were 16 patients. The median age was about 67 years. But what was important was that these patients with mantle cell had had three prior treatments. And in vitro studies have actually shown that there is some synergism between bortezomib and rituximab, so it was logical that you would put these together. Now, what was interesting about these patients who had three prior treatments 
is that 88% of the patients had prior rituximab. And, you know, again, here we're adding rituximab again. Many of them had had thalidomide, and actually 30% had had high-dose treatment with stem cell transplant, and about 30% had had fludarabine in the past. Patients did relatively well. There were some adverse reactions. There were a couple of reactivation of herpes zoster. There was one bacterial pneumonia, and a few patients had some peripheral neuropathy and mucosal candidiasis. But in general, it was well tolerated. What about efficacy endpoints? So the overall response in these 16 patients was 69%, with a complete remission of about 38%. And what's nice about this, in five of the six patients who had a complete response, it was confirmed by PET scan. And five other patients had a partial response. Any way to even guess how much the rituximab and dexamethasone is adding in this situation? Well, probably by about 15 to 20% improvement in complete responses. And so I think it really pushes those patients that were maybe having a response more into a complete response. It's interesting, and it's particularly interesting in that so many of them had this as prior therapy. I guess it suggests some kind of synergism. It does. And the important thing is that we do use rituximab in many patients who have had prior rituximab. And I guess you have to sort of tease out those patients that are truly rituximab refractory. And that's not easy to do. We do give a definition of rituximab refractory as a patient that either has no response to rituxin or they relapse within six months of the rituxin treatment. But I think there are many other factors that really define rituximab resistance. And I think that if it didn't work one time, putting it in combination with other agents where there may be synergism, I think that you can get a response again to it. What's interesting in this study is that patients, obviously, who had a complete response had a much longer progression-free survival. Well, so far, we had some pretty encouraging news in terms of mantle cells, something that we could use some positive news in. But there was also a late breaker by the Nordic group in mantle cell that was really interesting. That's late breaking abstract number one. Can you talk about that? Well, I think we're talking about many of these abstracts with mantle cells. So again, just to go back to what I said about mantle cell, it is aggressive and in general, it's not cured. So many, many centers have tried to look at very aggressive treatment up front. We know that if you look at aggressive treatment after relapse, most patients are going to die or they don't have a long duration of response. So the MD Anderson, for example, has developed a very aggressive regimen called the R-hyper-CVAD regimen with very high response rates, very high complete response rates, and overall survivals at one and two years that are looking very good. The problem is that even those curves are continually showing relapses. So we really haven't found something that cures patients. Well, this late-breaking abstract came out and said mantle cell can be cured by intensive immunotherapy with in vivo purging of stem cells support. And it was a final report of the Nordic lymphoma mantle cell study. And this was presented by Christian Geisler from Copenhagen. And what they noted is that in this phase two trial, it was intensive immunochemotherapy alternating with rituximab followed by an aggressive transplant regimen called the BEAM regimen and then stem cell transplant. And this was in 159 untreated patients with mantle cell. And they noted that they had an overall response of 96%. 55% of the patients had complete responses. 
and a 41% partial response. But what was impressive was that 72% five-year response duration and only 3.8% treatment-related deaths among the 153 patients responding to induction therapy. And they were very excited. They said this exciting data represents the longest event-free survival reported among individuals with mantle cell lymphoma and that it provides the basis for future studies of intensified immunochemotherapy in this group of patients who otherwise have not been curable. Do you agree, disagree, or in between? Well, this is very interesting. You know, a lot of centers, they get a diagnosis from their pathologist of mantle cell lymphoma, and they treat these patients aggressively. Well, it is very difficult to get the intense regimens into patients who are older, and the median age of onset of mantle cell lymphoma is 65 years of age. And so I think that what happens in some of these studies where we have such nice outlooks with this aggressive therapy is some of these patients had a more indolent disease, and yet they're all lumped together as mantle cell lymphoma. And if you look at a very interesting abstract that was presented from the Cornell group, Dr. John Leonard's lymphoma group, I think it was presented by Dr. Martin, and that is abstract 1362 presented from the Cornell group, looks at a group of mantle cell lymphoma patients that they had at Cornell, and they were treated with a relatively non-aggressive treatment. And these authors are saying that the results look as good as patients who have had aggressive treatment. They went back and looked at their records from 1997 on all the patients who had been diagnosed as mantle cell lymphoma. They had 181 patients with mantle cell lymphoma, and what they found is that about 81% had stage 4 disease, 75% had bone marrow involvement, 52% had an elevated IPI, and they were treated not with these aggressive hyper-CVAD and stem cell transplant regimens, but most of them had a CHOP or a CHOP-like regimen. And they reported overall survival. Now, obviously, overall survival is the bottom line and the important thing. They were not looking at progression-free survival in this. And they reported a median overall survival of 7.1 years. And that's very impressive. It's not that hugely different than the The Nordic transplant data. It's very similar to what we're getting reported from these single institutions where they've used the hyper-CVAD. So the conclusion was that at least from single institution reports, phase two trials, a very aggressive regimen may not give any better overall survival than a more conservative approach, looking at data again from a single institution. And what we really need is a very large multi-institutional trial with many centers participating and randomizing patients to a more conservative versus a more aggressive regimen. And it's not that easy to pull off because mantle cell is not that common. It only accounts for 6% of all non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and that interprets to about 6,000 new cases a year when you think what we're talking about 60,000 new cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in general. Let's talk about Abstract 385, looking at bendamustine plus rituximab versus CHOP rituximab. So Abstract 385 is a very interesting abstract. Bendamustine is actually an old drug. It came from Germany. It was used in eastern Germany and used really for multiple myeloma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. And bendamustine has been purchased by an American company now, and they're beginning to look at it in lymphomas and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, etc. So as you know, many treatments for indolent lymphoma and mantle cell 
do include CHOP with rituxan. And so what Dr. Matthias Rommel did is he actually said, let's see if we can use bendamustine with rituxan and compare it to CHOP plus rituxan as first-line treatment in patients with both indolent lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma. And this was the first interim results of this randomized phase three study. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanism of action of bendamustine? Bendamustine is actually an alkylating agent, but it has some purine analog characteristics. And what's interesting about bendamustine is it actually works in patients who are alkylator resistant. And so this is very important. And cytoxin and all of the other alkylators, usually if you use that in patients with aggressive or indolent lymphoma, you usually don't use it as second-line treatment if the patients relapse. And we will talk about some of the work that's been done with bendamustine, either plus or minus rituxan in the relapse setting. But Dr. Matthias Rommel actually used this in frontline treatment. So his aim was to actually see if it was non-inferior to CHOP rituxan. And his endpoint was event-free survival. And it was rituxan on day one and then bendamustine 90 milligram per meter squared on day one and two. And it was repeated every 28 days. And that was compared to CHOP plus rituxan as we know it every 21 days for a minimum of six cycles. He had 474 patients in this study. And so the overall response was 94% for the bendamustine rituxan, 93% for the CHOP rituxan. Very similar. And it was similar whether the patient had follicular lymphoma or mantle cell lymphoma. The CR rates were similar, 51% versus 40%. Really no differences between the CHOP rituxan and the bendamustine rituxan. And so the conclusions of the author was that bendamustine rituxan has less toxicity and the same efficacy as CHOP rituxan in both indolent lymphoma and in mantle cell lymphoma. What do you think the next step is going to be? I think it would be very interesting if this could be compared to actually replace CHOP rituxan, especially in indolent lymphoma. Will it replace hypercevat or CHOP rituxan in mantle cell? I think it's very promising. I think it would be used in older patients who can't tolerate something like the hypercevad regimen in mantle cell. So I think it's going to be used more often in the United States. Now, remember, it is not yet approved. We are hoping to get it approved. It has just been approved in Europe for relapsed chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What about combining bendamustine or rituximab with something else? Velcade is another agent. Bortizumab, I think, is a very interesting agent. And I think there are some trials looking at multiple myeloma in combinations. So if bendamustine were available to you right now, would you use it? And if so, how? Absolutely. I would probably have it replacing the CHOP regimen for indolent lymphoma because of the fewer toxicities. Very little alopecia with bendamustine rituxan as compared to CHOP. We never have really proved that adding the anthracycline in low-grade lymphomas has made a difference in overall survival. Yes, it makes a difference in responses and maybe higher CRs, but really does it do anything to overall survival? We're not sure of that yet. And you know, there's been some very high publicity of the CHOP regimen because SWAG has used the CHOP regimen for years. And so they don't want to change their chemotherapy drug when they have new agents. So they actually now have looked at a CHOP rituxan study, a CHOP radioimmunotherapy trial in their groups, and they actually had a publication in JCO last year saying that we're improving overall survival in indolent lymphoma by adding rituximab or radioimmunotherapy to the CHOP regimen. Well, my question is, will we improve survival 
by adding these agents to any other combination of drugs. Why does it have to be CHOP? It's CHOP because that's what SWAG has been using, and that's sort of what Europe has been using, and the German low-grade lymphoma group uses. I don't know if we'll get away from CHOP and the anthracycline. Maybe bendamustine will be replacing it. How much of an issue do you think alopecia is in these patients? You know, a lot of these diseases, even though we say the median age of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is 60 or older, we are seeing more and more young patients with both indolent and aggressive lymphomas. I have 30-year-olds with follicular lymphoma. They're going to live for maybe 8, 10 years. That's a terrible diagnosis to give a young person, and that's why hopefully we'll have newer trials. But they don't want to interfere their work. They don't want to lose their hair. They don't want to wear a wig. They want to keep going on with their daily activities of living. And perhaps that's why, unfortunately, radioimmunotherapy hasn't made it with the doctors in the United States. It certainly has made it with patients. They love it. As long as we're talking about bendamustine, do you want to comment on paper 1351, which was another paper looking at an indolent lymphoma? Absolutely. So talking about bendamustine, there was a trial that was a poster presentation by Brad Cull from Madison. And this was the final report of bendamustine being safe and effective in patients actually with rituximab refractory indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And what they had was an overall response of 75% and complete remissions of 14% with a median duration of response of 9.2 months. And so this was the first chemotherapeutic agent to demonstrate significant clinical activity in rituximab refractory indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it came to be a very effective drug in patients who have actually failed rituximab. What about the safety and tolerability in this study? Very few side effects. Again, thrombocytopenia, you have to think about. It usually recovers. Not many of the patients had to have delay in their cycles for the next time. And again, no hair loss, essentially no hair loss. So certainly tolerable side effects. You were mentioning before about radioimmune therapy, and there was a paper number 643 looking at Zevlin. Can you talk about that? One of the outstanding oral presentations at the uh, American Society of Hematology this year was Abstract 643, which was presented by Tan Hagenbeek. And this was looking at Zevlin as consolidation therapy in first remission after chemotherapy in patients with advanced stage follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And this was a large study, 414 patients. And actually, there were about 77 centers throughout Europe and Canada who put patients on this study. And it was really left up to the discretion of the investigator as to which induction patients received. They could receive CHOP or CVP or fluidara-containing regimen. And patients were actually then randomized after they had either a partial or complete response or stable disease. And they were then randomized within several weeks after completing their cycles of chemotherapy. Most patients had six cycles of chemotherapy. And they were randomized then to either observation or zevalin consolidation. Primary endpoint, obviously, was prolongation of progression-free survival, and that would be calculated from the time of randomization. The second endpoint was how many patients would change after chemotherapy, say they had a partial response, how many would then go into a complete response. And the other thing that was evaluated that was not reported in this abstract, it was actually an abstract of its own, was how many patients converted from BCL2 positivity to BCL2 negativity, i.e. a molecular response. The overall responses 
were median follow-up now of about 2.9 years, and the progression-free survival in the observation group was only 13.5 months. In the Zevelin group, 37 months, so a p-value of 0.0001. And for the patients in subgroups where there was a PR or a CR after induction, Again, the median progression-free survival, if they only had a PR and then they went on to observation, the progression-free survival was only 6.3 months. If they had a PR and then they went on to Zevelin, the progression-free survival was 29.7 months. Now, if they had had a CR from their chemotherapy, the observation group, their progression-free survival was 29 months, but if they had Zevalin, it was 54 months. So a tremendous increase in progression-free survival, whether you're a PR or a CR after chemo. And they essentially said that 77% of the PRs after induction converted to CR after the Zevalin. We actually reported at ASH a smaller study that was similar, but what we did that's different from this trial, which was called the FIT trial, it was randomized and it had full course of induction therapy. In our abstract, abstract 1360, we actually looked at an abbreviated course of chemotherapy. So what we did is we had advanced stage follicular lymphoma patients who had a intermediate or a high flippy and they were treated with Fludara and Novantrone. And after the first four patients, we actually added rituximab to that. And we had 20 evaluable patients in our study. So we looked at patients receiving four months of induction chemo, FNR, and then within six to eight weeks following that, they were then consolidated with Zevalin. And what we found is that the abbreviated course of chemotherapy was very effective. Many of our patients did have very good partial or complete responses after the chemotherapy. With consolidation radioimmunotherapy, there was an increase in the complete responses. And what we did in this study that no one else has done is we actually then put patients on rituximab maintenance for two years. And so six months after their Zevalin consolidation, they were given four infusions of rituximab, and that was repeated every six months for two years. And so what we found, we have an overall response rate of 100%, complete response rate of 70%, and the complete response rate tended to increase after the radioimmunotherapy and even increased after the rituximab maintenance. Now, not everyone has gone through the maintenance phase yet, but I think these are very promising results. And you're sort of doing everything. You're adding rituxan with the chemotherapy. You're then doing consolidative radioimmunotherapy and then maintenance with rituxan. And at least in our trial, it seems to increase the complete remissions even more by adding the rituxan maintenance. So this kind of approach needs to be obviously taken to some larger trials. What's interesting, I think, is that the abbreviated chemotherapy may be important because these patients are going to live long. We don't want to expose them to prolonged chemo if we don't have to. Obviously, we're going to be following the patients for long-term side effects, and hopefully we see no myelodysplasia. 
These results are really encouraging. If I was a patient looking at this, I'd be looking really hard at it. What do you think about this strategy in terms of radioimmune therapy and this type of approach in a non-protocol situation? Well, you know the big discussions over radioimmunotherapy use in the United States. And actually on December 7th, there was an article in the New York Times talking about what's happened with reimbursement for radioimmunotherapy. And it's half the amount of the cost to the company. So, I mean, we're talking about, unfortunately, right now, a drug that is underutilized. It is probably one of the most effective drugs for use in certainly relapsed indolent lymphoma. You're going to see from some other abstracts, it's being used in mantle cell lymphoma. It's a wonderful option of therapy that is dramatically underused. I think it's going to take off in Europe now with the results of this FIT trial in chemotherapy with consolidation with Zevalin. Excellent results, long-term progression-free survivals, good durable response rates, and a lot of complete remissions. So you have a patient who says, listen, cost is not an issue. I just want the best possible therapy. Would you consider utilizing this strategy off-study? Actually, I would. And in fact, I have patients who have come to me and they fortunately can pay for it and they have done that. You mentioned the strategy in mantle cell and abstract 389 is looking at that. So abstract 389 is actually a follow-up of an ECOG trial. It's the ECOG trial 1499, and it's a study of RCHOP followed by Zevalin in untreated mantle cell. And remember I said that some of these much more aggressive regimens like the hyper-CVAD regimen or aggressive treatment and then transplant is not something that can be offered to the majority of patients with mantle cell disease because they're over the age of 65. And so this is an interesting approach. Patients had untreated stage 2 to 4 mantle cell, and they had four cycles of RCHOP, so a little bit similar to what we did with the indolent lymphomas, an abbreviated cycle of RCHOP, not six cycles, but four cycles. And if the patients had either a CR, a PR, or stable disease, four to eight weeks after their last chemo regimen, they were consolidated with Zevalin. And the primary endpoint, again, was failure-free survival, and the secondary endpoints were evaluation of response and toxicity after the RCHOP and then after the RIT. Now, what's interesting with adding consolidative Zevalin to RCHOP is that Howard in 2002 reported in the JCO the efficacy of RCHOP in mantle cell. He said it works. And 96% overall responses. He had 48% of the patients going into complete responses. But what happened to all of them? They all relapsed with a median relapse duration of response of only 16 months. So in order to show that Zevalin was more efficacious by adding Zevalin consolidation, the study needed at least 52 patients to demonstrate a prolongation of the failure-free survival by 50% more compared to the RCHOP. So remember, the RCHOP duration of response was 16 months. So we needed at least 50% greater than that to show that Zevalin consolidation would be effective. So they actually had 56 patients that were randomized. 73% of them were male. The median age of these patients was 61. And again, a classic mantle cell, 91% had stage 3 and 4. The majority of them had bone marrow involvement. And the majority of them also had high intermediate or high-risk IPIs. 91% of the patients received all of the treatment. And the best response was 42% had CRs or CRUs and 32% had PRs, and 12% had stable disease. After radioimmunotherapy, 
there was the usual toxicity. About 55% had grade 3 or 4 neutropenia. They had no febrile neutropenia. About 45% of the patients had thrombocytopenia, but everybody recovered in 12 weeks. Now, the median follow-up for this study is 24 months, and the median failure-free survival for all 56 patients is 27 months. So remember, we had to compare that to the Howard study where the failure-free survival was 16 months. So this is an impressive result. Obviously, radioimmunotherapy after four cycles of RCHOP and untreated mantle cell is very effective, and it suggests that we have an improvement in failure-free survival compared, obviously, to RCHOP alone. Again, in a patient where cost is not an issue, maybe an older patient who's looking twice about something like RHOP or CVAD, would you consider this off-study? Yes, I would. And actually, Neil, I have four patients who range between the ages of 70 and 75 who had mantle cell. They were treated with RCHOP. They had six cycles of RCHOP. They went into a complete remission. And those patients have been consolidated with Zevalin. And three of them are out three years with no relapse. And two of them went two and a half years without a relapse. We've been talking a lot about our hyper Let's talk about paper 387 that looked at that and newly diagnosed mantle cell patients. Now, remember, our hyper has been done at a single institution with excellent responses. And this is the first time that the hyper regimen was actually taken to an intergroup study. So this was reported by Elliot Epner, and I think his conclusion was, the responses are not as great as in a single institution, and boy, this is a toxic regimen. Their conclusions, essentially, for this trial was, they again, in a inter-institutional trial. Their results were similar to MD Anderson. It's just that they said the regimen is really toxic and that they have a continuous pattern of relapse over time. So the conclusion that this may be the answer to mantle cell is obviously in question. But it's interesting that in this multi-institutional setting in general, they first of all, they seem to confirm the response rate or the efficacy. Was that your take? That's true. And I guess even at MD Anderson, there was a lot of toxicity observed. Are you utilizing this regimen yourself? We are, and we use it in younger patients. We actually use it with Burkitt's lymphoma. We use it with acute lymphoblastic lymphoma of the B-cell variety. And in the young patients, it is also toxic. And I think if you know the hyper-CVAD regimen, there are essentially two alternating cycles. The first one is sort of an infusional CHOP regimen. The second cycle is high-dose methotrexate and ARIS-C. And it is that second cycle that really has most of the toxicity associated with it. Actually, 40 to 50% of the patients have grade 4 neutropenia, thrombocytopenia. We've recently had a patient who had prolonged cytopenias after his fourth cycle, and we had to delay his fifth cycle for two weeks. So these regimens, you have to balance. When we always say to get the efficacy of them, you really have to give full dose on time. But yet, if your toxicity outstrips your efficacy, you're not ever going to be able to get all the cycles in. So even with young patients, it's not an easy regimen to get in. And as Dr. Epner said from that last abstract, he said, maybe they can get it in an MD Anderson, but we can't get it in any place else in full dose. What about the so-called modified r hyper that Brad Call has studied? Yeah, and that was not updated at ASH this year, but it's an interesting way of looking at He reported 22 patients a year ago at ASH, and the modification really is that it eliminates the high-dose methotrexate and ARIS-C, and the rituxin is given a little differently. 
And his results, although early, were very comparable to the MD Anderson data. What is even more interesting that ECOG has now taken this a step further, and they are looking at a hyper-CVAD type regimen adding Velcade or bortezomab in the hyper-CVAD along with the vincristine and the cytoxin and the adriamycin. So that has just opened and it is accruing at ECOG. So I think we'll have some data in a couple of years on that. What has been seen in terms of safety or toxicity with that approach? You're seeing a little bit more neurotoxicity because of the combination of the Velcade and the vincristine. The vincristine in that study has been dropped to a one milligram dose rather than the usual 1.4 milligram per meter square dose. It really kind of makes sense. Are you optimistic about that? I think I am. And we actually have that opened at Rush and we're going to accrue to it. 